Good morning. First of all, apologies for my voice. I lost my voice for 10 days in early January. It's still not as strong as it should be. For those who don't know me, uh, I'm Alan Ellershaw. Uh, Sue and I were appointed here to, to lead this church back in January 2009, and we enjoyed our time serving here until September 2017. And we're delighted to still be involved in the church, even though we're no longer part of the leadership of this church. I've been invited by Christy to bring a message based on this new series we've launched on what normal church should look like as we find it in the Acts of the Apostles. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 2 and verses 14 to 41 for our reading this morning. And we're going to be looking at biblical preaching. I've been thinking this week about how many different preachers I've listened to over the years. It's literally hundreds of different preachers. I'm sure many of you would be the same. And when I think calculate the number of sermons I've listened to, it's thousands, if not way beyond that. And what I realize is that sermons take many different forms. Uh, There are those who, on a Sunday morning in their church, will give a presentation, taking something out of the newspaper, For example, they might talk about Richie Sunak and his tendency to take U-turns when he's under pressure to change his mind. And they might say, you know, is it a good thing or a bad thing to change your mind? Is it a good thing or a bad thing to do a U-turn? That's quite a good question, actually. Make quite a good sermon. But that's all it is. It's like an editorial from the Sunday newspaper with little reference to the Bible at all. However, you'll find other churches that you go to where they will open the Bible and you will do a page-by-page, line-by-line, word-by-word analysis of what each word in the passage means. And although you leave the church informed, it doesn't really touch where you are. You might guess I'm not too much of a fan of either of those styles of preaching. But I have to say that here at CFM, we have two, in my opinion, two of the best preachers in the northwest of England. Thank you. (laughs) I'm speaking, of course, of Christian Ian. And And the reason that I suggest they're really good preachers is because I think they've taken a little time to analyze this sermon that Simon Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. For I see some similarities between how he presented the message and how they present their message today. Because my voice isn't particularly strong, I've asked Sue to come and read the passage for us this morning, please. So Acts 2, beginning to read at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem... Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood 
before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body will also live in hope, because you will not not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let my the Holy One decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Amen. This must have been the most effective sermon in the history of the Christian church. Don't you think? One sermon, 3,000 people respond. Sadly, we live in a day where we get 3,000 sermons. Might see one person respond. So it's well worth looking at this particular passage and seeing if we can discover some principles of how to communicate well and how to encourage people to respond well when we open the Bible and we speak. This is a rather short sermon, isn't it? How long did it take Sue to read that sermon? It's three, four minutes, maybe? Is that the key, then? If we only had three-minute sermons, that would be the answer. Well, of course, this isn't the whole sermon. These are the notes, the bullet points, the headings, if you like, of the sermon. Because we also read that, verse 40, with many other words, he convinced the people. However, I do think it's quite a good thing to have a check on how long we speak. 
I was at a conference uh, one time, a, a men's conference, and I realized that when the speaker stood up to speak, at the back of the auditorium on the screen, the minutes began to count down. And I thought, that's a fantastic idea. It's a fantastic idea for a speaker because he, then, he or she then knows whether to expand the point or edit the point because his time's running out. I thought it was quite a good idea for a listener too because I found I could turn around and see <laughs> just how long it would be before he landed the message. But it isn't the length of the message that's important, it's the content that's really important. It's very clear, if you read this passage through a few times, that it does fall into three clear sections. And we're going to look at those three clear sections. It suggests that any good message should have these three clear sections. The first section comes verses 14 to 21, where Peter connects with his hearers. It's the first challenge of a public speaker, quite frankly. How do you get the attention of the people who are supposed to be listening? Uh, and uh, you'll note over the weeks here at Canvas that different pastors in our church use different approaches. There's one that will usually tell us a story. Let me tell you a story about something that happened at Cape and Ray or Canada or on the farm. <laughs> And that's a pretty good way, actually, at getting our attention and saying, oh, that's quite interesting, Ian. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Not certain how it fits with the message. Oh, it does fit with the message. <laughs> and, and Christy will use a slightly different approach. He'll often put something up on the screen that maybe is from the newspaper or something current or something he's discovered and uh, trying to grab our attention that way. It, it is important that we try to gain the attention of those who are listening to us. Sam and Peter had a distinct advantage here, quite frankly, because what had happened just on the day of Pentecost, where these disciples were now so full of God that they were overflowing, speaking his words, and people understood that God was being glorified, that created a great opportunity. It's wonderful when you go to a place and you're asked to answer questions. I always actually quite like questions. Um, when I'm leading a congregational meeting, maybe a business meeting, I actually quite like questions because it shows that people are engaging and it's easier to answer a question than try and create answers for questions that no one's asking. So the crowd were asking, what does this mean? What's going on? And they were making their own suggestions about what was going on. They suggested that these disciples must have been drinking alcohol because it looked like they were intoxicated. And they were intoxicated, that is, not drinking alcohol. They were intoxicated because they were full of God's spirit. And God was so real to them that he was overflowing through their lives. An aside here, please forgive me for this aside, but it's coming anyway. The Bible does say quite a lot about the dangers of drunkenness. It does warn us quite seriously not to get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, which leads to sinfulness, but rather to be filled with the Holy Spirit that leads to self-control and leads to love and joy and peace and patience. 
So rather than being full of a spirit that makes us out of control, to be full of the Holy Spirit that gives us a new control. That's the balance. Sue and I, over the years, have taken the view that we prefer personally to adopt an alcohol-free lifestyle. Now, this isn't demanded in Scripture. Let's make that clear. It isn't demanded in Scripture, but it is an option. Uh, And I believe that for me, it's the best option, and I'll tell you for why. I've not been someone that has drunk drunk alcohol any time in my life, but I do know my personality. And I know my personality is such that if I do anything, I do it to the nth degree. So if I had a glass of wine, it wouldn't be a glass of wine, it would be a bottle. Knowing the sort of personality I've got, for me, for us, we believe that an alcohol-free lifestyle is the most sensible option. And I encourage you all to consider that option. I'm not saying it's something you must do. Consider it as an option. Because it saves us. There's one sin I will never never commit. Drunkenness. Or addiction to alcohol. It'll never happen. Because it can't. But let's get back to the passage. So these people are accused of, the disciples are accused of being drunk. And Peter starts with the crowd's question and he quickly introduces scripture. Have you noticed that? That's always a good approach for speakers. Start with reality, then bring the Bible in. There's too many places and preachers that start with the Bible and rarely get to reality. And I've been maybe painting with a broad brush there, but I think it's true. Peter begins with reality, and then he moves to, do you know what? Now I can tell you that what's happened here is actually what was predicted in the Old Testament, and he quotes from the book of Joel. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit. Notice those two words, pour out. It's not sprinkle. It's not shower. This is a deluge. God wants his people to experience such a baptism of his spirit that we are saturated and drenched, literally. And it's available to anyone. Notice that? Sons and daughters, young and old, servants. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ as we'll discover in a few minutes' time, we'll get to the conclusion, this promise of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life is for you and your children to all who are afar off. I've just quoted from later in the sermon. So Peter connects with his hearers because they're asking questions. That's a great help. I I like preaching at funerals and weddings because the congregation know what you're going to talk about. It's always easier if there's a subject that's everyone seen. Or it's not the hardest time when there's a disaster. Back in the end of October uh, 1994, there was a crash, an aeroplane crash. And uh, the superintendent of our network of churches and his administrator were killed. I had the task of preaching the next Sunday in our church at Fullwood, and I found it one of the easiest messages to preach because everyone knew what the situation was and everyone was 
totally attentive. He connects with his hearers because they're asking questions. But also notice, verse 14, he stood up with the eleven. This was one speaker, but he was part of a team. Uh, It's tremendously encouraging encouraging when you are speaking and you know that people are backing you up and for you. If a speaker keeps looking at you, it's not because he thinks you're guilty. It's probably because he thinks you're a really good listener. I find that I find different people in different congregations that encourage me to, they sort of draw the truth out of you. You know, yeah, what's next? That sort of thing. There are a few around. Uh, It's quite hard to find, but you can find them. (laughs) So the first point in the first section, verses 14 to 21, Peter connects with his hearers. That's the challenge of a good message, a good sermon. Then we look at verse 22 and following. There's a real change of tone there. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And then in the next verses, he begins to tell them, explain who Jesus was. Second point, having connected with his hearers, He points his hearers to Jesus. So verses 22 to 36, it's all about Jesus. Look at those verses more close. You'll find he starts with the life of Jesus, the miracles, wonders, and signs, verse 22. He then focuses on the death of Jesus, verse 23. What was the cause of the death of Jesus, according to Simon Peter? It had a dual cause, wicked men and God's purpose and plan. So it wasn't just the miscarriage of justice that caused the crucifixion of Jesus. It was the predetermined plan of a heavenly father to send his son into our world that that one man would die so that we might live. That he would bear the punishment so that we might be forgiven. It was God's perfect plan, not just the miscarriage of justice through Pilate's weakness and through the Jews' envy of him. That is, the religious leader's envy of him. But then in verse 24, having talked about the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, he goes on to speak about the resurrection of Jesus. And Verses 25 to 31, he says, actually, this resurrection was predicted in Scripture. And he opens to them understanding of Scriptures that were penned originally by King David, but couldn't apply to King David because King David died. And they refer to Jesus, who did die, but has been raised to life. So he points to the Scriptures. And to prophecies that are now being fulfilled. Where did Simon Peter gain his understanding of these biblical truths? Where where do any of us gain our understanding of the Bible? You open the Bible and you think, I'm not sure I understand this. I'm pretty clear I know where Simon Peter got his understanding of these scriptural truths from. He'd been listening to a preacher. That preacher was Jesus of Nazareth. 
and he'd spent 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension opening the Old Testament to them to explain why I'm here. It wasn't a mistake. It's part of a plan. And these scriptures refer to me and the resurrection. So I've been talked about his life and his death and now his resurrection and supported it by looking at Old Testament prophecies. He then, in verse 33 to 36 points to his exaltation. 33. So we got verse 32. God raised this Jesus to life. We're all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. How important it is that our vision, our understanding of Jesus is big enough not just to think about the Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. What an amazing person he was. What an amazing life he lived. What a tremendous difference he made in the lives of others. Who wouldn't want to follow Jesus and be like that? Embracing the outcast. Forgiving the fallen, restoring and transforming people's lives. His life was amazing, but don't just think about the living Jesus. Think about the one who willingly went to the cross and died for you. (laughs) But don't think of him hanging on a cross like some crucifix. That cross is empty. And so is the tomb. That he was raised to life. And then was able to open the scriptures to the understanding of the early apostles. And through the Bible we have that understanding ourselves. But we sometimes need a preacher to help us unpack the truths. Peter had a great preacher. And we've got a better preacher even than our pastors. Because the risen Jesus said... The Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will lead you into all truth. We can read the Bible and ask God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, to help us to understand and apply it. So let's not have a narrow vision of Jesus, the living one, the dying one, the risen one. But more than that, the ascended one. He now sits at the Father's right hand and intercedes for us when we're going through it. Someone's praying. And it's not just our friends. It's our heavenly advocate. But not just that. Having ascended to heaven where he sits to intercede for us, he released, sent the Holy Spirit into our world. The folks at Cape and Ray make a lot of the fact that it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. You'll hear that again and again if you go to Cape and Ray. And it's true, it's a biblical quote. But the reality is, He's in heaven. 
The reality is it's the Holy Spirit who is Christ in us, the, whole, the, the hope of transformation. And I think some churches are almost frightened to use this term, Holy Spirit. Why should we? He's the comforter. He's the counselor. Yes, he's like Jesus. He brings the life of Jesus. Yeah, we should. Okay, we don't worship him. Well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're God, so we worship them. But we... he makes much of Jesus. That's true. So let's not just connect with our hearers' speakers. Let's not just connect with the speaker if we're listening. Let's open our minds to understand who Jesus is. Which brings me to the third section of this, mes- of this message Simon Peter preached, which is verses 37 to 41. I'm going to read these verses. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So having connected with his hearers and pointed his hearers to Jesus, now he calls his hearers to respond. Some of you will remember Peter Collinson. Some of you related to him. One of the things Peter Collinson, who was a retired Baptist minister, who came here to live in Carnforth and joined this congregation, something he was keen to, to say to young preachers was, your message needs to include a so what. So what's the point of this message? So what's the application? So where do we go from here? We have pastors who are pretty good at that. Christy likes to emphasize the so what. And it's important. So Peter's message creates this response, what shall we do? And Peter's very clear, gives them very clear steps, practical steps, repent. You see, they were cut to the heart because they realized they'd misjudged Jesus. They'd been part of the crowd that said crucify him and now they realized that they'd cried crucify him when he was the son of God. And they wondered, could they ever be forgiven for what they had done? They were convicted, we might say. What shall we do? And Peter says, repent. Say, I'm sorry. Admit you were wrong. Be willing to change your attitude in your relationship, your perspective about Jesus. And having repented, be baptized. Christian like this emphasis. Um, It's not just about being baptized as an adult. It's being baptized as a believer. That's the point. It's not your age that qualifies you for baptism. It's your faith. But repent and be baptized. But what about believing someone's going to say? Shouldn't it be repent and believe? Yeah, it should. But they were believers, remember? 
the believers, verse 44, as it were, all together and had things in common. So they, it was there, it wasn't specified in this list. Repent and be baptized was what was said. And what are the promises? That when you and I come to understand that our attitude to Jesus has been wrong, and we say, I'm sorry, and we turn round, what happens? Forgiveness. Isn't that an amazing thing? Forgiveness. The most powerful words in the English language, I forgive you. How many times have we said sorry? But have we ever really heard those words, I forgive you? Those are the liberating words. And to know them spoken through Jesus Christ, through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, you were no people, but I embrace you. Now you're my people. I know you'd not received mercy, but now you have this forgiveness. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from some, no, all unrighteousness, no matter what it is. There's forgiveness. But it isn't just that. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promises to you, your children, to all that are afar off. So he calls for response. Repent, be baptized. Open your life to God the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I know. There have been churches where there have been excesses and things happened that were part Holy Spirit and part wild personality, human. But don't, don't shut down your, your openness to God the Holy Spirit because some people have abused this experience. So here we have it. We need to be very clear about the content of the good news. It's all about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. We need to be very clear about the promises of the good news. Forgiveness for the past. The Holy Spirit's presence for the future. To start a work of transformation in our lives that not just affects the words we use, but the lives that we live. And we need to be clear about the conditions for this good news. Repent. Believe. Be baptized. John Stott writes this. We have no liberty to amputate this apostolic gospel by proclaiming the cross without the resurrection, or the New Testament without the Old Testament, or offering forgiveness without the Holy Spirit, or demanding faith without repentance. That would create a really good sermon, wouldn't it? It would. The cross without the resurrection, the New Testament without the Old Testament, forgiveness without the Spirit, or faith without repentance. All necessary. So we've looked at this amazing sermon that caused 3,000 people to say, yeah, I'm in. And we've suggested connecting with the hearers 
pointing to Jesus and calling for response is the key. But have I missed out the most important thing of all? I think I have. The preacher was full of God. The preacher was full of the Holy Spirit. The preacher had just experienced a radical life-changing encounter. And I think when we preachers experience the life-changing encounter, the congregation know about it. And a response happens. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that you're willing to come to this earth and live amongst us. We're also so thankful you died in our place. And that you ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit is at work in our world today. We just pray we'll be more aware of his presence and more open to his leading. And we're thankful that you have promised that you would not leave us as orphans, but you'd come to us. You'd lead us into all truth. The spirit of truth would lead us into all truth. Bring to memory the things that Jesus said. And do a work of transformation in our lives until we become more and more like Jesus. Amen.